Hello, you're listening to the Social Protection Podcast. Welcome to the next episode in our special six-part series brought to you by ODI and GIZ in partnership with socialprotection.org. I'm delighted again to welcome Francesca Bastali from ODI as guest host for this series. We'll be back with a regular episode in August. Hello and welcome to this Social Protection Podcast special series. I'm your host, Francesca Pastali. Today's episode is part of a six-episode series based on an ODI GIZ-funded project on social protection response to COVID-19 and beyond, lessons learned for adaptive social protection. Over these six episodes, we'll be asking, has COVID-19 marked a turning point for social protection? In our ODI-GIZ study, we covered six thematic areas, each with an accompanying paper. Each week of this podcast special series, I'll be joined by the lead author of one of the papers, along with an expert discussant. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about COVID-19, social protection, and gender inequality. Before the COVID crisis, women were more likely than men to live in poverty, to work in lower paid and insecure employment, and to lack adequate social protection. The pandemic has exacerbated many gender inequalities. We know that an unprecedented number of social protection measures and adjustments have been taken since the onset of the crisis in an effort to contain crisis impacts and in some cases to support a sustainable and equitable recovery. But how well have these initiatives, especially social assistance ones, worked in providing adequate support to women that have been affected by the crisis? Have such adjustments taken gendered inequalities into account? Does the experience to date point to initiatives addressing these, or are they mostly replicating inequalities? And what is the emerging evidence and learning for helping ensure that social protection is gender responsive moving forward? Here to discuss these questions with me today are Huda Abrams-Faker and Rebecca Holmes. Huda is the National Advocacy Manager for Black Sash, a human rights organization advocating for advancing social security in South Africa. Rebecca Holmes is Research Associate at ODI and Deputy Team Lead for SPACE, the Social Protection Approaches to COVID-19 Expert Advice Service. She's also lead author of the paper, Have Social Protection Responses to COVID-19 Undermined or Supported Gender Equality, together with Abigail Hunt. Huda, Rebecca, welcome to this podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. It's great to be here. So there's a growing body of evidence on the impact of COVID-19 on women and girls. Rebecca, what do we know about how the crisis is impacting women and girls? We know that COVID-19 has exacerbated the inequalities and discrimination which women and girls already faced before the pandemic. COVID-19 has meant that women have been disproportionately affected by losses in jobs and livelihoods from the economic crisis that the pandemic has generated. Women in the informal sector, for example, have been the first to bear the brunt of job losses as a result of the lockdown measures with the restrictions of movement and social distancing. The ILO reports, for example, that in 2020, women experienced 5% employment loss globally against 3.9% for men. 
and across all regions, women have been more likely than men to drop out of the labour force. And women are more likely still to be out of work, even as economies start to recover. Another impact that has disproportionately affected women has been the increase in care burdens as a result of the pandemic. Again, this has exacerbated the pre-existing unequal division of labour within the household, the unequal distribution of unpaid care. The presence, for example, of children in the household, um, family members being home, family members being ill, homeschooling responsibilities, cooking and cleaning, all disproportionately fall on women. And this creates not only time poverty, but also puts emotional anxiety and stress on women as well. And another area that we've seen increases in, especially for women, is the increase in social risks around violence and exploitation. The lockdowns, again, school closures, the impacts and the stress of the economic crisis have increased risks of exploitation, gender-based violence, adolescent pregnancy and early marriage. And there's a real risk that these indirect impacts of COVID-19 will reverse the positive progress that has been made on gender equality and women's and girls' empowerment over the last decades and less specific measures targeted to respond to these gendered risks and vulnerabilities are made. So what efforts have been made to date to ensure that social protection responses to COVID-19 have been gender responsive? What are the examples of how gender inequalities have been taken into account? So whilst we do find some emerging good practices in programming, which I'll talk a bit about in a minute, Overall, the context is that the global response has really fallen short of addressing specific gendered needs and risks created and exacerbated by the COVID crisis. When we look at some of the positive examples, however, we can see there are aspects of programme design. For example, women being included in the eligibility criteria for new or expanded programmes. This has often been the case where women or female-headed single-parent households were already within the eligibility criteria, but we also see this in new and expanded programmes as well. In Burkina Faso and Colombia, for example, cash transfers explicitly targeted women informal workers. Other programmes, for example, in Argentina and Brazil, have expanded social protection and sought to reach vulnerable informal workers, including women, through more demand-driven mechanisms. Another way that programmes have responded to some of the gendered needs are through adapting programme benefits. For example, in Brazil's emergency cash transfer, the value of the transfer was double the amount for single-headed households, most of whom are women. And similarly, in Togo's cash transfer scheme, they paid 20% more to women based on the evidence that a higher share of women's expenditure goes towards the household needs. We also see an example in Kerala, in India, for example, in the response to the first wave of the pandemic in early 2020, where social protection programmes were really considered and embedded as part of a wider response that included, for example, a focus on food rations, community kitchens, emergency cash transfers, 
loans through women's cooperatives and particularly focusing on women's economic needs, as well as psychosocial support via helplines. So really looking and providing a response which was broader than uh, a single transfer, but looking at the, the context and the needs more holistically. We also see a few programmes that have adapted delivery systems. An example of this is the move to digital payments that COVID really facilitated in response to reducing social contact. But the challenge with moving to digital payments, especially mobile payments in many countries, is that women are less likely to own or have control over mobile phones. In Somalia, this programme shifted to mobile payments during COVID-19 and SIM cards were distributed to women, recognising this challenge to ensure that they could receive the payments as planned. There have also been programmes which are becoming more aware of the importance to strengthen safeguarding within programmes as well to reduce protection risks and gender-based violence through awareness raising or establishing referrals to gender-based violence services. Huda, what have been some examples of the way in which social protection responses to COVID-19 have been gender responsive in South Africa? So our president acknowledged that poverty and food insecurity had deepened dramatically in the course of just a few weeks after the pandemic. So the government introduced special relief measures, um, which included a child support grant for beneficiaries where they received an extra 300 rand for one month. And they received an additional 500 rand each month for the caregiver of that child subsequently. And this is especially significant given that 98% of the recipients of these grants are women. Now, at first glance, it definitely looks that the government was sensitive to the plight of women and children by increasing the amount of the child support grant albeit for only one month, and then also providing a top-up to recipients of the child support grant for five months, which we call the caregiver's grant. But the government failed to consider women as individuals in their own right. With the pandemic, it highlighted the challenges of the poor, and in a context where unemployment and job losses were the order of the day, women were the worst hit where research has shown that within months of the pandemic, the largest proportion of job losses were experienced by women. So while there was the introduction of a COVID social relief of distress grant for the unemployed, the grant failed to provide the relief to unemployed women specifically. So the special caregivers grant entrenches the view of women in their role of doing care work and not in the individual right as adult women. As a recipient of these grants, they were automatically excluded from applying for the grant as an unemployed woman, despite the fact that they were unemployed. Because in order to be eligible for this uh, special grant for the unemployed, you should not be in receipt of another grant by the state. And so even though women may be receiving the child support grant on behalf of, or if I can say as a proxy for their children, their details were reflected on the government database, whereby they were automatically rejected through this verification process by government. And then to add salt to the wound, the caregiver's grant terminated at the end of October as the COVID uh, grant for the unemployed was extended for a further six months. 
And there was no rationale for this gender discrimination. The gendered nature of the grants was confirmed by the fact that most of the recipients of the grant for unemployed were male, as most women were automatically excluded as recipients of the caregiver's grant on behalf of their children. Thank you, Huda. So you've given us an example of how, as a result of design and implementation features in, in the response to the crisis, in practice, the response ended up discriminating or indeed replicating gendered gaps in social protection provision. What are some of the other gaps and challenges to ensuring a gender responsive approach in social protection response to the crisis? The COVID uh, grant for the unemployed have been a critical in intervention that has helped millions of families put food on the table in a year of massive job losses and a humanitarian crisis. So the exclusion of women from benefiting from this much needed relief is unjustifiable and violates women's rights to social assistance. Um, it is also worth noting that the application of the grant for the unemployed was primarily an online process, which by default was exclusionary, given that the most vulnerable do not have access to digital infrastructure and do not have the tools to access the application. So the COVID-19 period will undoubtedly spur further use of digital mechanisms to deliver social protection. And so when we look, there was a review done looking at digital technologies in social assistance COVID relief measures. And the review suggests that an important objective for policymakers will be to build on the capabilities developed during the crisis to strengthen sustainable social protection and payment systems that are both inclusive and effective and address the challenges faced, especially by women who are often digitally disadvantaged, which begs the question in terms of were more women even excluded because of the fact that the application was online. And so too, going forward, there are already steps by the government in South Africa looking at shifts to digitization and automation and how that will by default also exclude people and especially women. Thank you, Huda. Pepeka, turning to you, based on your studies and, and the work in, in a number of countries, what have been the main challenges to a gendered approach to responding to the crisis via social protection? Reflecting on the, the South Africa example, which is quite a specific example of the, the caregiver's allowance and the, the exclusion, but I think this actually illustrates some of the wider challenges um, with the existing approach to social protection, which has really been reflected in the COVID response. And that is, again, the assumption that targeting women, you know, as named recipients of benefits, for example, equals a gender responsive approach, whereas this is much more problematic and, and, and complex. Women are often targeted as recipients of a transfer in the household because of their gendered roles and responsibilities. For example, how women will spend the transfer more effectively on behalf of the household. And whilst on the one hand this recognises and can support women in their caregiving roles, it also undermines their own entitlement for social protection as individuals and economic agents in their own right, as the South Africa study um, example clearly illustrates. 
We also find on reflection that few countries have really used social protection as a mechanism to respond to the needs of women created by the crisis, that social protection programmes haven't taken a gendered approach um, to responding to those vulnerabilities and, and risks which women in particular face. We see very few programmes in reality that have found ways to support um, women's increase in, in care responsibilities, for example, the increase in violence, the core you know, gendered um, dynamics of the crisis. And we haven't seen that through either the core dimensions of social protection programmes, either through the design or some of the implementation challenges, which we've just been talking about. But we also haven't seen that through thinking about options for linking social protection programme recipients to other relevant services and programmes as well, which could provide a more comprehensive approach and response to the challenges that women in particular are facing. What have been some of the enablers or indeed the bottlenecks to a more gender sensitive response to the crisis? And why do we see the persistence of these challenges and gaps that you've been describing? I think one of the key issues here is that there are existing gender gaps in the provision of you know, routine social protection. And so the COVID responses that have adapted or built on existing social protection programmes have highlighted um, and exacerbated these gaps. It's also you know, important to, to think about the context in which responses to the pandemic were made. Ultimately, there are trade-offs across programme design and implementation decisions. Programmes that didn't already have existing gender responsive and inclusive design and implementation features were unlikely to then introduce this in the context of that rapid decision-making in the crisis, especially given that time and fiscal pressures that decision-makers were under. I mean, it's clear that the countries that have had existing infrastructure were better able to expand or adapt programmes quickly, including from a gender perspective. But we have seen other influencing factors too, which limit the attention to gender within social protection responses in the context of COVID. For example, the availability and the use of data, which is disaggregated by sex, as well as other cross-cutting dimensions, such as age, disability and ethnicity. But whilst there are you know, lots of innovative examples of how data and real-time data has been used throughout the pandemic, it is rarely routinely disaggregated um, by dimensions of gender, for example. An exception to this is Kerala's example. Again, in, in the early response, real-time data was collected from community health workers and local organisations, which highlighted important gender-related issues arising from the crisis and was able to capture how this changed over time. And mechanisms were put in place to then use this data to inform programme response. But we also find that issues like preparedness plans, you know, attention to, to gender through strategies and coordination across gender responsive actors also limit or can support a more gender responsive approach. 
within the COVID response, many types of the responses and social protection responses have relied on local actors, including you know, organisations led by or representative of women and informal workers. We've seen in India and Argentina, for example, where organisations of informal workers worked with government to reach member-based workers, they shared information about government programmes, act as a last mile bridge between the government and intended recipients. In many other countries, local organisations have supported the implementation of programmes. Civil society organisations have supported holding governments to account. And I think it is also important to point out that quite often local actors have not been adequately funded or provided with appropriate PPE, for example, and are rarely involved at a strategic level to inform programme design and implementation decisions. And this lack of often diversity um, and representation of women in leadership positions at the policy table, that therefore reinforces a more one-size-fits-all homogenous response, which doesn't adequately reflect or respond to the context or different gendered experiences of those who are in need. Huda, Rebecca mentioned the role of civil society. Could you tell us about the role of women-led organizations in shaping social protection response to the crisis in South Africa? So civil society strongly advocated for the extension of the grant for the unemployed. So we have been instrumental in emphasizing the vulnerability of the unemployed. However, we fell short of putting pressure on government to extend the caregiver grant, despite strong advocacy campaigns and even a legal intervention where we, we tried to engage government to extend the caregiver grant so that women could receive additional monies for a longer period of time. Um, so too, when the COVID SRD grant had come to an end in October, there was a push by civil society, which resulted in two increases. But unfortunately, in the context of advancing the interests of women, civil society was very hard and advocated very strongly, which resulted in a mobilization and a unity uh, within the sector as a whole. But at the end of the day, there wasn't significant intervention made at the moment, because despite us being in a third wave in South Africa, and despite the fact that the consequences of the pandemic will be felt for a long time to come. The, the social relief measures are no longer in place. So there's no longer a grant for the unemployed. There's no longer a caregiver grant. And the numbers of women specifically who are unemployed, the number of job losses, the number of deaths of breadwinners in South Africa as a result of COVID has made the plight of the poor more so and food insecurity and urgency. And despite urgent calls by civil society, there's been no no further feedback except to say that they started a policy process. So what is the way forward? How do we how do we take this forward when there are no uh, measures in place for women in South Africa? So Huda, Rebecca, as you know, the guiding question to this special series of this podcast is 
could COVID-19 be a turning point for social protection? And so my question to you is, you told us about examples of both how measures taken since the onset of the crisis have taken the differential impacts of COVID on women and men into account, but also ways in which, in fact, measures adopted have either ignored inequities and, and differences and risk perpetuating gaps. What will it take to help ensure that the innovations that were brought about uh, by the crisis and, and the disruption also that it has brought will help address social protection gender gaps in the future? And, and with the view both of ensuring better preparedness for future crises and stronger and gender responsive social protection in routine provision. Huda, over to you first. COVID-19 is, was definitely a turning point in the South African context. It compelled government to acknowledge the vulnerability of the unemployed in South Africa. And this was highlighted during the pandemic, which led to the introduction of a grant for the unemployed and showed the positive impacts of the significant intervention. Uh, it prompted the initiation of a policy process to consider the introduction of universal basic income towards achieving comprehensive social security with a phased in approach, starting with the unemployed. However, it also highlighted the challenge in, in terms of the amount that was paid and who was eligible for the grant. So we hope that with the uh, policy process that's being taken forward, that those will be considered and addressed. And so we want to also emphasize that we hope that government will take note of the gender disparity by in limiting the eligibility criteria, which resulted in gender discrimination, and that that will be adequately addressed in future policy processes. We also need to keep an eye on the shift to digitization with the application processes. We believe that it's prompting government to use digitization in social services, which has its pros and cons, especially in the context of infrastructure, capacity and education and digital literacy. So government needs to consider that going forward. And noting that government hides behind fiscal constraints to realize the right to social assistance, saying that there isn't enough money, there's no budget uh, for um, social assistance. It is imperative for government to consider the national budget from a human rights perspective and look at it so that it's gender sensitive to consider the subjective context of women to work towards substantive equality. It's important for government and crucial to make an investment in human capital for full economic recovery by considering the fiscus from a human rights perspective and reprioritize the budget to reduce inequalities through intersectional budgetary practice and being gender sensitive. There is an urgent need for a mind shift by government so that it has political will to address the challenges in the country through social assistance, which must be complemented by job creation. Holding government to account with a coordinated advocacy strategy within the sector with mobilization from the bottom up is a key to effect change. There's still a lot to be done. I agree with Huda's comments. They are not only relevant for, for South Africa, but also have relevance for the social protection sector and, and what we can be doing to support more gender responsive approaches. I 
think that COVID-19 has certainly heightened investment in social protection and it has also raised the profile of certain gender and inclusion issues in the policy agenda. I think we see that clearly around gender-based violence, for example, and the increased visibility in policy circles that this now has. But now the real focus will be on how to ensure that social protection going forward, both in routine social protection, as well as in preparedness for other crises, and also in longer term economic recovery, that gender is embedded within these programme responses in design and implementation, not just in terms of targeting women, but responding to the gendered needs, risks and vulnerabilities that women face in terms of poverty and in terms of context of crises. So there are a number of entry points and opportunities which can be harnessed in order to support a more gender responsive approach to social protection. One of these is about being strategic, developing gender equality and social inclusion strategies for social protection, setting clear ambitions for gender equality for women and girls empowerment and for how this is to be achieved through program design and implementation, identifying what the activities are, what the program design and implementation features are that will achieve equitable outcomes for women and girls. And this is important not only going forward for routine social protection and longer term economic recovery priorities, but also in thinking about developing preparedness plans for the future across the sectors, including gender, disaster risk reduction, humanitarian response and social protection. Gender needs to be mainstreamed across all of these and also resourced within a strategic plan as well. Another entry point is really investing in and using the collection and analysis of disaggregated data, not only to inform contexts and to inform programme design, but importantly to monitor and evaluate existing programmes to capture the benefits of social protection measures by sex, age, disability and other areas as relevant, and using this to inform programme design and implementation going forward. Another entry point is about investing in partnerships and multidisciplinary teams, engaging with local organisations to co-design and implement programmes, establishing common strategies for gender equality, creating an enabling environment to bring diverse actors and women leaders to the policy table. And another entry point and opportunity is really to look for those opportunities to embed gender transformative objectives to support longer term progress on agency and empowerment. So often within short term crisis responses, longer term objectives of empowerment are put to the side but building on a social protection programme which can contribute to future empowerment of women and girls is important at the outset. This requires, for example, coordinating and working across other sectors, building on programme linkages, even outside of the social protection sector. For example, linking 
beneficiaries to relevant services, skills, social norm change interventions, gender-based violence services where available, for example, but to create a longer-term objective and support longer-term progress on gender equality and women and girls' empowerment. Huda and Bex, thank you for joining us today and sharing your precious insights. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you'd like to read more about this topic, the paper by Rebecca and Abigail Hunt is available at ODI's website at odi.org, along with other papers and resources from the wider ODI GIZ study. You can also check out the earlier podcast episodes from this special series. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we'll be talking about the role of development assistance, ODA financing, in social protection response to COVID-19, and what it means for the future sustainability of social protection. The Social Protection Podcast is a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research, and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.